We are helping charities claw back the four billion pounds that they've lost in the next three months because of coronavirus with creative superpower and strategic superpower alone. First of all, that's a yeah. nice mic. Oh yeah, this is a road. This is a road. When did you get that? We had a podcast called The Dog Days. Um, I say we had, it's still going, but it's, it's very much changed in what it was originally. Um, and obviously with everything being online now. So we kind of thought like, you know, we spend 130 quid an episode back in those um, BC days for like, the, you know, the sound engineer and the mics in the studio. Uh, why don't we just buy mics? So we just bought mics. A good mic setup and a good webcam is like the equivalent of a new suit. Oh, yeah. Or a nice, uh, nice outfit. The only investment I made are these AirPods. See, I've, just, I've yet to decide to make that move. You're back in the Stone Age because you're still wired. The jack I've got is the old jack because it's the one that goes into the Mac. It's confusing me. You've got a Rode microphone and then you've got <laughs> wired earphones from 2003. <laughs> this was what my co-host made me buy. This is who I really am. It, it makes you look humble. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm aiming for humble. I feel humble at the moment. Christ. I mean, like, gone are the days of making revenue. Are you staying afloat, though? Yeah, we, you know, we're, we're quite lucky. We had like unknown, I don't, I don't know, it's so funny. I have like four different conversations with people. I don't know if this is going to be about the dog days or if it's unknown or if it's good brains. I want this to be um, about good brains, but I also want to hear a little bit about your journey to get to this point. Because what I'm really interested yeah. about is speaking with people who are doing something that does good in the world, does some kind of good in society. And, and I'm more interested in the road that led to the decisions to get to the point they're at now, more so than what they're doing now yeah oh that's interesting yes yeah. i like that you've you've sort of like you're reverse engineering good because sometimes uh good is is in the mask of good but actually there's a whole fucking load of revenue behind it and it's and it's a bit of a thing which we can stick on and say i'm doing a good thing but that's to mask you know all this other shit that i'm doing a lot of people are using it as a brand opportunity I don't know if you yeah. agree like brand purpose is a tactic and it's not something that is ingrained fundamentally inside the DNA of your organization. Yeah, I, I've always been like, you know, I've, I've massive and there are so many things that have led me to be like this, but you are what you do and not what you say you do. And I think, and brand is a really interesting term to use when it comes to doing altruistic things like setting up a charity because the brand, everyone says the brand is what you're, what people will say when you're not in the room, right? But you, <clears throat> people that try and build their brand so, you know, with their hands wrapped around it, they want to be in the room so much that they shout their brand and you don't really understand what the brand is because it's always being shouted at you. And I think that's normally a bad brand. Um, but sorry, just to go back to you, because I'll be all over the place unless, unless I start chronologically. Um, I started in recruitment. I did that for eight or nine years. I was at Gemini, which was the company, uh, one of those James Kahn weird recruitment companies that got like heavily invested in and then like heavily withdrawn. For me, it was the birthplace of learning what skills I had, how to make a good amount of money through recruitment. Um, and to be honest, it was, it was quite, it was a bit of a trailblazer in terms of we approached advertising ourselves in the right way. And it was all about like, you know, living with values. It was funny on the values conversation because we got it so wrong. You know, we learned all oh, values. They, they're really important, right? Let's, let's work out what our values are. When you try and boil down or distill a whole company and it's a quite a diverse board of people, like eight people. If you try and distill what the company's values are, 
you are guaranteed to end up with the same answers. It's almost a cliche that you pay a consultancy company like tens and tens of thousands of pounds to come back with the same four wanky values as everyone else. Yeah. But it defeats the purpose. It needs to be ingrained in your DNA and, and it needs to be the reason why you exist, not an afterthought. A hundred percent, man. That's when inauthenticity comes through and people can see through that. But you can see it with what's happened in recent times, the Black Lives Matter movement, trying to attach themselves to the conversation but just doing it to jump on a bandwagon and to shoehorn themselves in the conversation because it's an opportunity to earn some attention. And there, and, and it's been interesting to see the backlash. Yeah, L'Oreal, right? So you, you look at, I, I always see these things as if you weren't in the room at the time that the conversation happened, then don't try and get into the room because at that table, you had Nike who had already done a campaign around Colin Kaepernick. At that time, you had multiple brands that were already speaking and doing the stuff that they, they said they were going to do. And it's and because of that, they have to say, you know, internally we're doing these things. Now, one could argue, is Nike doing that because that is where their culture and customer base thrives and lives? Are they doing it for revenue purposes? Maybe, but at least they deserve to be in that room. L'Oreal, who have fired, you know, black models and da 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 da, putting a campaign out so painfully with their brand tagline of like speaking out or black lives are worth it or whatever the fuck the line was, is a clear example of, of opaque authenticity and relevant marketing. So like, I completely agree. And that, and that was kind of my, my journey into learning more about this stuff is because I was so scared. I used, you know, in recruitment companies, you're told to kind of have, a, have an opinion on, on the industry or whatever. And the minute you do, and if it's too far, no, 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 no. Just say what everybody else is saying. Don't be the first person to say it because that's really dangerous. Why? I think because you, we, we were, I guess we worked for a company that were trying to scale to a point that uh, you could almost franchise it, right? So, and when a company's growing at such scale, you need consistency, or it was the belief that you needed consistency in uh, values, in explicit content, in everything. So we write like this, we speak like this, and therefore together we are this brand. But the problem with trying to do that with a recruitment company is that the success of a good recruitment company is based on its individuality. You never, you know, most companies that will use a recruitment agency will use the person. They'll use Sam. They'll use, you know, Daisy. 100%. So then what you can't ask is there a communistic communications approach where everybody says the same shit because then you just become social media wallpaper and you don't stand for anything. So I, I, I kind of learned, you know, in, in the wrong way with Gemini. I used to put like, little fucking weird statuses out that used to get loads of loads of traction. And I remember our little bless our little marketing director lady to come in and be like, what the hell is that? I'm like, shut up. It's working. Since then I went and launched unknown and whatever. Um, but I, I got into like LinkedIn virality and I started speaking to all the big LinkedIn heads like Dan Kelsall and you know, all those dudes might win it. These people, uh, you know, that clearly mastered a, an approach to writing a status on LinkedIn and getting virality. I wanted a piece of that. So I kind of, I met with Dan and I was like, how can I approach going viral? Like, what do I need to do? Firstly, why do you want to go viral? What's the point? And I was like, well, because, like, you know, everyone will know our name. Like, no, they won't. They'll know the status that you've written. And they won't remember you. They'll remember all the comments that happened in, in that time of the status. It links back to vanity, doesn't it, though, at the end of the day, wanting to go viral? 100%. It's interesting, though, because I, like, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 24. 24? Yeah, just turned 24. You're not sure. Well, I grew, yeah. <laughs> I grew up with, with social media and like through my teenage years, I kind of looked at likes in a different way than people who are older than me, who maybe came up with social media in their twenties because it's such formative times in your teenage years, right? So growing up with Facebook and Twitter, you really measure your self-worth differently um, with your likes as a currency. 
So I found it interesting, one, becoming like aware of that in the first place, but two, how that transcends into a professional sphere as well. And what I found really interesting is that difference and actually huge, huge overlap in that chasing, the validation chasing between posting on Instagram and wanting to get lots of likes and posting on a professional professional network, LinkedIn, and getting lots of likes. And that links into what you were saying around a lot of people want to chase reality, but ultimately when the likes start coming, crashing down, if you tie yourself and your self-worth to the amount of likes you're getting, then when it comes down and when it stops and eventually will, then what's supposed to happen to the way that you view yourself? It's supposed to come down as well. So I think the goal is uh, just actually giving a shit and believing in what you're posting because you actually want to help people. You want to provide value. You don't want to do it for showmanship. When you care about something enough and your way of expressing the thing that you care about is a LinkedIn status or a YouTube video, you won't care anymore about the validation from the likes that you can't control anyway because you're not a wordsmith. You just care about this thing. And like the thing that you can judge is how well you've written it and not what you've said. Because I've got a friend, Josh Connolly, who has come on my podcast loads of times and we speak about resilience and you know he tried committing suicide twice and now he's a leadership coach for Dyson. He's unbelievable. And he, he sort of dissects mental health and the conversation around mental health because believe me, I mean, shit, right? LinkedIn is the, the place for virality and mental health at the moment. And again, it asks the question, why, why are people doing that originally? Now, Josh himself, who trains people not to get caught up in the, the validation trap that everyone gets all over the attract into. It ties into our human nature as well. He still himself, he finds it hard not to because it's the gambler in us. It's the fucking, oh, look, that's doing really well. You know, and then you want to do the same thing again because it's like, whoa, everyone obviously loves it and everyone loves me now and I'm the fucking messiah of, you know, mental health. <laughs> so it's, it's a really dangerous place to get caught up. When you ask the question, looping about to the purpose of this podcast, you know, what decisions did I make and why did I start um, Good Brains? Going before then, the first like altruistic thing I did was Dog Days, which is the podcast. And the, the friction moment, the moment where I was like, fucking hell, I need to do something about this myself was I couldn't, I couldn't sell unknown. I couldn't describe it to people, right? And I was joining this partnership and I was getting really nervous about like not being, not being able to have the three-part sell. And so I, I ended up paying all this money for this presentation course. And it was this old school advertising lady that led it. And I was like, you know, once I've done this course, I'll be able to present my business and I'll be done. That's the kind of the silver bullet. I'm going to get it all down, right? So I did the course and it was fucking awful. Like it was the worst thing. You walk into the room, Martin Sorrell's new business director was on this course. He was American. He was called like, what was it? It was like flame or something mental. Like I didn't, and, and he was just like the most beautifully articulate person I've ever seen. And I was like, oh my God, I've not told anyone. I've got the biggest fear of public speaking. And I've also got the biggest fear about describing what my company does. This room could not be more intimidating. And there was, a, there was an Irish comedian there that wanted to perfect how he positioned his fucking comedy to people. It was hell. So I, I, I went through this whole process and I, I won't bore you with the whole day, but I, um, I came out of it and, and she filmed you, right? And at the end of the day, you're going to come back with a better presentation from the beginning. And I remember her name was Tish and she was like, no, oh, Ollie, no. Oh. I've never seen someone whose performance gets worse throughout the day. Like, <laughs> I was like, was it that bad? And she was like, I mean, you crumbled. You really crumbled. I was like, no, I know. And I was, this sounds really sad. I'm, I'm getting the little violin out. But I went to the toilet afterwards and I just cried. Right. I was like, oh, 
It sounds stressful. It was my own way of going on a bit of self-discovery. I don't think I was confident in myself. I was always measured on my billings, which were always quite good back in the day. And suddenly that was ripped away and validation was removed. You know, I broke up with my girlfriend at the time. I had no boss. Suddenly it needed to come from within. Yeah, completely. And I had nothing to measure my success on apart from this fucking lady called Tish who told me that I was crap at presenting. So I was just like, I've come out of that room and been like, you are scum, right? So I, so I, I, I got like a life coach and I started the dog days and it was purely about all the shit times that you go through as an entrepreneur and of anybody that starts anything and like celebrating in a stoic way the, the, the hard times right and, and and hopefully making things relatable that everyone else goes through them and fuck the first person was this guy called josh who tried committing suicide twice you couldn't get much tougher than that right so we sort of we started there and then everything with unknown became easier because i was like do you know what like i don't know why i get in such a frenzy about what i'm trying to do if i can just get what i want to do down into a sentence and not like an ad land sentence where it's like i want to be the first person to land on mars with my fucking biscuit nothing like that just like what are my explicit what are my explicit intentions for this business right and unknown ended up being so many things i was like why can't we just call it discovering the unknown which is finding untapped talent and therefore unknown opportunities and then we're constantly known for finding things that are a bit fucking weird and crazy which keeps the diversity wheel spinning which keeps the new opportunity which means we're the first ones that you call when you're building an ai product that's all we have to say is that that was the line so i sort of i discovered that then I fell in love with the idea of my own business finally because I hated it and I was in this weird partnership with these guys and I just went fuck this I'm getting out and so I got out of the partnership because they were doing something very different with a different product that I didn't really I wasn't really into and we went separate ways and that that was the birth I think for me of like believing in myself having a bit more confidence I had a few like 12 15 podcasts behind me at that time and I've met these brilliant people I built a network um and then a year and a half later, which is now, uh, it's been brilliant. I've hired my, my top billing consultant from Gemini who went to another business. He's come in. I've got two other guys that are joining me. And then, boom, coronavirus happened, um, which I'm sure you've had on everyone that you've spoken to. What happened in those three, four days after that, that Monday morning when everyone woke up and it was everything completely changed? We were just about to launch into Dublin. Um, I've just gone into partnership with a, a tech consultancy out there who are amazing. They're connected to every SME out there. And I was like, oh my God, I've got an Irish office now. So we have an office out there. We, we're, we're sort of like wicked. This is awesome. I found the person that I want to go lead it. Wow, amazing. So we're like, we're so much in a stride that we're leaping over the fucking channel, whatever it is. The, the, yeah. <laughs> the water. Yeah, the water, that fucking wet thing in the middle of us. So I sort of, we're, we're there and I'm like, oh Jesus, we can't do that anymore. And I, there's no need, like, you know, Dublin doesn't suddenly, won't let us in after all this goes. There's no actual, my, my thought process was, that is not a priority. Your priority is paying the people that have come to work for you. One that's only been there for four months. And then it's making sure that you can have enough money. We're also, at that time, I just signed off a new website thing. It was only five grand, but it's still five grand for a small business. So I was like, I can't not pay him. He's a good friend of mine. So let's make sure we have enough money for that. I did all the maths and I said, okay, how long can we physically survive um, before anything happens? And I worked it out to be about 10 months, of which we're into four of now and we still haven't had any extra money coming in. So we've got six left. Um, I think my maths is right. Yeah. 
yeah. <laughs> um, so thank you, thank you. Um, so so I said, okay, we've got ten months of of no revenue coming in. I can make use of the furlough scheme for one of my uh, for Sam, but not for me and not for the other person. Um, I won't go into why, but it was very long and we couldn't work it out. So that's cool. That takes our cost down. So we can live for 10 months. Wicked. Um, and then I, this is the, uh, the feeling I had was just, aren't we lucky? Like there are, and that's not to make me sound fucking, you know, oh, isn't he lovely? It's more just like fi- financially, uh, emotionally, you know, fucking business wide. We, we were in a really, really good place which wasn't the case for the first six months of unknown. I built nothing. Like I had restrictive covenants. I hate myself. I was crying in presentation toilets. Like it was not good then. And, and a year later we have enough to pay for three of us. So I was like- Celebrate, not in a self-congratulatory way. Just like, fair enough, got to this point. How are we going to move forward? Definitely. And, and aren't we lucky to have these cars on the table and not none, like, you know, cause the option could have been, I've got a friend that's just launched a dating app. Um, and he had to go work for like the, the guys that were telling you that you couldn't go running and stuff, like all the, the public service people were like, he's mad. He's like, he's bound and destined to be a multimillionaire. And he's had to sort of go, oh, we've got no cash in the bank. I'm going to stop. Which is, uh, so that I'm so glad that I'm not, I wasn't in that position. I'm very lucky. And I think because I get this feeling of guilt and this isn't, and again, I'm not trying to make myself sound like a lovely person, but I do get, when I have a lot of money, which I've gone through, you know, as everyone, particularly if you come out of recruitment, you suddenly get X amount paycheck and you go oh, i'm a millionaire and then you go get fucked and it's gone um so <laughs> or me you know go to a holiday or whatever so i've gone through that and i when i have a the most i've ever had in my in my account i sort of go i have this guilt of like you're sitting on quite a lot of money what are you doing with it that's either going to progress your vision forward or do good for, for the people that work for you and in, in the community and i the first thing I do is fun, always fun first. So I had like us, we were going to all fly out to Barcelona. Then I had uh, Portugal, Rock and Rio, fucking Foo Fighters are playing and Liam Gallagher. That was going to be happening next weekend, but it's obviously been cancelled. Um, all this stuff was kind of planned. So that's all been ripped away. So the first thing I was like, how can I make sure that we can still enjoy this time? And then the second thing was like, what the fuck am I going to do with all of these amazing people that need to do something with their creative skills and superpowers um and actually like ah, it doesn't feel right to be talking about recruitment and asking for a fee now and i mean not only does it feel right no one is doing that right (laughs) unless you're very lucky and into if you recruit for zoom um and uh, to be honest now considering what we have in the bank and considering where we are wouldn't it be awesome if i could finally use this kind of like networking opportunity to create a movement for good and not with anything at the end of it. Like, you know, when like a, when you get a waiter, I always say this because some people advertise so badly, right? You know, when you get a waiter and they're like, they're walking around your table and like, they've been amazing. His name's Angelo. And it's, oh, Angelo, thank you so much. Oh, it's okay. It's lovely. And he's been brilliant, right? I don't know why he's now Italian, but he is. Um, and, he, and at the end of it, you're all sort of like looking in your pockets and you sort of, who's got change? Who hasn't got change? Let's give him a tip. Let's give him a tenner. You're having this discussion and he can't hear you having that discussion. And he comes over and he goes, how much are you going to tip me? And you go, oh, fucking hell. It just, it's dirty, right? And you're sort of like, oh, I was going to actually, I was going to give you 30 quid because it was like an unexpected thing. But now you've kind of overtly gone, how much money? Yeah. So when I did this Good Brains thing, and when we came up with the idea for Good Brains to Good Brands, I made it clear. I was, I don't want this 
to be seen as one of those like, hey, and by the way, you can use us to do your recruitment. Like that wasn't, and of course, yes, we have more people on our books now. We've got 250 that have signed up. We knew all of them already. Like we, we knew all these people. And, and so I was like, I don't want it to be seen like that. So I was very careful before doing any PR, before telling campaign and the drum and whatever, you know, we've done this thing. I didn't, I, A, I wanted to have four clients, you know, before going, hey, aren't we we're doing this really cool initiative and have no fucking charities? B, I wanted to have people that have actually signed up to it, which is quite hard to do without saying what you're doing. Um, and C, we needed to have at least one bit of work signed off. That I, so I knew that the concept would have actually worked for a charity and made them 100%. Because there are so many things that are done purely for PR purposes that didn't even mean anything or do anything. Like, like at the beginning of this call, we said with the Black Lives Matter content that's been going out, so many brands have stuck on that mask for the day and gone, fucking hell, that was knackering. Next. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and that's what I didn't want to do. I wanted it to, and again, you are what you do, not what you say you do. I wanted to do a campaign for a charity and go, that's what we're doing. And we're going to do more of those until, well, until we have to stop. So, so that was kind of the, how I wanted to, to kind of display the, the good movement. Um, and yeah, since then we've, yeah, we've picked up, it's quite exciting actually. We've won a charity in Ireland because of what's going on with Dublin. I was like, we might as well do some stuff in Ireland as well because we have an office out there. So let's try and help the community out in Ireland as well. I don't know why, but everything around, they're very, very community centric because they've got, I think, less population than us. And there are more Irish people in Ireland, I guess. And I think when they see somebody on TV with an Irish accent saying, I'm losing my life in two months time. I want a wish to be granted for me. It's more patriotic. Yeah, and it's relatable. You just go, fucking hell, that person sounds and looks like me. I want to give them some money to help them out. So, they, yeah, we've won two really, really big charities. We've even been given budget by one of them, which is mental. Like, Tell me how it works. So, idea, you said before you were struggling to say idea in a line. What is that one simple idea for? Okay, we are helping charities claw back the four billion pounds that they've lost in the next three months because of coronavirus with creative superpower and strategic superpower alone trish look at this boy now now and by the way it's tish without the r my god i hope she doesn't listen to it. Um, she really wasn't that horrible it's just yeah anyway that wasn't a great pitch but it, it, and it is hard to get into a sentence because a lot of people are like but how much time is it going to cost and da, 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 da. um you can't cover everyone's question in the elevator pitch. If it was in a line, if it was like the ad line, I guess we'd say saving charities with creative superpower. Your one-liner's in the name. If you need a one-liner, it's in the name. Good brains for good brands. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, yeah. well, this is what I've learned. SEO and all that jazz. I, I had a super greens powder that tasted like shit and I called it rank. No one bought it, right? Because no, no one's Googling rank and then buying a super greens powder. So when I was like, okay, what do I call this? It was just, I want to put good brains for good brands together. Um, so yeah, that, that, was, that was it. And the process, the way that it works, because I think a lot of people couldn't say, and you see it on LinkedIn, it's lovely to see, but I don't know if it's helpful, people offering their time and saying like, you know, I want, I'm giving everything away. But there's no structure. There's no yeah. structure to that. And I, and I am not Mr. Structure, but I do know the, the importance and power of structure. So the first person I spoke to was a strategist and I said, give me all the shit things about working with charities and what would solve the problems if we were to set up an advertising model for a charity. And she said, time, right? So make sure there's a time constraint, meetings, make sure there aren't many meetings 
and uh, what was the other one? Uh, oh, in communication. So she was like, break it down. It's four, four Zoom calls, eight phone calls, four weeks. So the minute you were as a charity, you walk in and I, you had a call with me, you, I assemble the team and I go, here's the, uh, the strategy director, here's the creative director, um, and then here's maybe an account director, which I'm discovering the high importance of. So, mate, so that is so important because otherwise that's going to fall on your shoulders. Yes, and there's now 10 charities. I'm in all the WhatsApp groups that I've created and it's like, I, there's like 100 messages that have happened in all of them in the last five minutes. So I'm like, oh, and I was doing all of that myself originally. But I, I've got like four account directors. I've got an Irish girl from BBH called Susan, who's amazing. I've got like, you know, all of them have got, the thing that we decided to do was actually tell people the charities that we'd won. So the 250 people that had signed up so far, we sent them a note and said, here are the five charities you picked up so far. If any of them resonate with you and mean something to you, let us know because you jump up the queue. And the minute we did that, A, the service was a lot better, but B, you could rely on them because they were like, I have an autistic child. Of course I want to help out Special Olympics. So that that was really, really, and a game changer for us. Everyone told me not to do that. And I was like, then fuck it, we've got to do it. <laughs> At Brightship, we only work with, I'm not going to give you the whole spiel, but we like we believe in compassionate capitalism. So we believe that business should be used as a force for good. We have a, a kind of similar model to you, I guess. We've got an internal team of account managers, operation support, um, project managers, and we have a network all across the world of uh, digital freelancers, senior consultants, content creators, influencers, and we can pull together bespoke teams and be really agile and mobile and all of this beautiful stuff that you're discovering. And it's, a, it's incredible because we can not only bring in the right people for the right job at the right time, but we can bring in people who truly align to the mission and vision of our client partners as well. And when people actually authentically give a shit and have a choice to do it, that is when the best work happens. They work a lot harder. Because they want to. It's intrinsic, it's intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivations. And it's incredibly important. So extrinsic motivation, you're working at a big agency and you're doing it because you have to, it's your job. Intrinsic motivation is because you actually really care about driving positive outcomes for the people that you're working for it is funny it's funny you say that i read on sifted i don't know if you look at the sifted things that come through all the european startups and stuff i wrote it down it was like last last decade was the decade of convenience and all these things were being built out of deliveroo uber blah, 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 blah. and apparently given what's happened this is the decade of purpose and we're going to see all i mean good for you right if it does happen but like i think we're going to see it's coming and it's gone. Purpose is sort of like, well, yeah, but what about revenue? I feel like it's here to stay because of how brands have seen the impact of, I mean, coronavirus, Black Lives Matter, all of the stuff that's really important that's happened. It's just how, and they're going to need consultancy on it because it's like, how do you do it without looking so shit? You can't do it as a marketing ploy. It's going back to what I was saying before. It needs to be ingrained into what you're doing. Purpose is a very muddy and mucky word. What I prefer to refer to is like impact. Like what is the tangible impact of your existence? And I think that impact needs to go hand in hand with your profit. And only when businesses can be measured um, on not just risk and reward, but risk, reward and impact, that's when that fundamental change will happen. I love that you said that because you've linked the impact. It's funny, I, I won't say it online, but there was a company that used to do this thing about diversity and recruitment. But really, this pays. And if this doesn't happen, this still pays. So because the link isn't there, I think you're right. The same thing happens. The wider the gap is from your intrinsic purpose to your extrinsic, whether it was purpose or motivation, the more problems that are going to happen and the less that's going to be worth it. 
we've all had to wear a mask at some point or another. Yes. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How exhausting is that when you can't actually be yourself? You have to keep up with this charade that you're putting out into the world. It's exhausting. And that is probably what results. That is definitely what results in huge amount of mental health issues. We've got, it's funny because you've got onto a situation at this, the topic of conversation that I find really interesting, which is like this spotting the authenticity gap. It's the hardest thing because we all, no matter what, where you are in your life, you will have, you will have experiences of becoming inauthentic. And a lot of the time they can start to serve you when it becomes very dangerous. And I've got a really close mate that I'm having a call with after this. He has uh, a global following and has, you know, millions of influencers and has just broken up with his girlfriend. Now, the person that he was in out of the relationship and on his social media is the person that 2 million people love. Right. And they DM him the whole time. And he's, you know, you're amazing. You're a football player. We love you. But the person that really knew him, i.e. his girlfriend and his friends were the ones that made him feel good. Right. But this was where his money came from. His money came from the two, 3 million. So every day he would be the person that they wanted him to be. And he's become, and now he's broken up with his girlfriend who's left him because you couldn't deal with this shit anymore, this person you're projecting to be, and you're never present with me, you're always on your phone, like putting out bullshit about this person that you, you want, you're not even that person, right? He's now with nothing, and he's going, oh my God, I would trade those two million people for those two people that knew me and loved me for who I really am. And I think this is, the, this is what we're saying about this, that, that external validation, and the, big, the, the wider the gap is from your authentic, real self that you are with your friends and the person you're projecting online, the more problems you're going to run into later down the line. And he's running into them now. And it's, it's really sad to see because it's gone so far. And I think he's tried quite a few times to put things out that are more like him and he gets no reactions. That's very hard. I've had similar conversations with similar people, both clients and friends, who are almost too, too far gone. That is, and and it's, it is a trap unfortunately massively the authenticity trap <laughs> yeah but when it comes with bra- to brands and businesses and charities and organizations it's it it does come back you can do it authentically if you do have a reason for existing and you and you do your best to communicate that at every single touch point not just the touch point to your customers not just externally internally is more important because if you don't communicate why you exist and your real reason for being to every single person who works with you if you don't really drill it down so that they know why you exist and why they're there, what their purpose is of being there, then there will be gaps that need to be filled. I mean, it's easier when you're startup scale up than it is when you're a corporate. Scissors, rock, paper. We are in bright shift and in unknown and in everything else. Um, we're scissor companies, right? We can just fucking cut straight across the industry because we're small and nimble and we can do whatever the fuck we want. And it doesn't, matter, it doesn't make a difference. If we need to change, we change. There are so many brilliant scissor companies out there. Then as you build and you grow and you've got like a team of 20 people, you have to start having these values that are kind of echoed to the rest of the company and, you know, employ people permanently. You become a rock and you still have momentum. You're still rolling and rolling. Um, you, can, you, can, you can kill scissors because you've got more than they have, right? You've got more money and resource, but you can still move, right? You're agile. What kills rocks? Paper, right? Because they're fucking big. But what kills paper? Scissors. So paper companies are like the big old fucking manufacturers that can't change. They're 150 years old, but they've got the big old, like they've got the money and the resource and the relationships and the, and the kind of rigor and all that jazz to, to maintain their, their length of, uh, of, of service. But it's the rocks that get killed by the papers because they've got more of what they need. So you see, and we see, we always see like ebbing and flowing of different things coming in and out and scissors are what, 
fuck things up, but you can't be a scissor forever. That's so interesting. I've not actually heard that said before. And that is why corporate accelerators, corporate incubators is such a profound thing at the moment because it allows these massive corporations to invest in these scissors so that they can diversify their risk and they can be nimble. It's the it's the jetpack thing, right? You know, when a rocket goes up and they've got a weird thing hanging off the end of it. That's the old corporate and there goes off the new scissor and it becomes a rocket in itself. It's just evolution. It's how it happens. And you have to, it's this whole sub, sub, uh, subtraction, addition by subtraction. You can only add if you subtract. And I think the corporate and the running of the business will then become the thing that you end up subtracting. But you can't do it too quick. Otherwise, you lose what you stand for originally. So it's, yeah, you're right. The labs and the innovating things and those little hubs are exactly where they birth their hopeful future. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you for having me on, sir.